hello, and welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire. I shall be your host. The theme of tonight's episode is hidden creatures, much like the ones hiding in the corners of your house. You can see them sometimes out of the corner of your eyes, watching. Our first story tells the tale of a sea captain who, after his long voyage, dies unexpectedly, though a hidden diary found by an appraiser reveals the true details of what happened to our captain. We present to you the boat. It was two days after the death of Mr. Peterson that I was called in, all those years ago. I'm an appraiser of sorts, and was asked by Mrs. Sullivan, a longtime housekeeper of Mr. Peterson, to look through the deceased books and papers in search of anything of value that she might sell, as his estate had fallen to her, and to give her an estimate of what she had hoped to bring in. If nothing, however, could be put up for sale, then I would supply her a price to dispose of the late Mr. Peterson's belongings. To be sure, I had not a clue as to why I was selected for the job. I had less than a casual acquaintance with Mr. Peterson. We were often at the same gatherings, but never spoke. I knew more of him than anything else. He was a good reputation and charismatic. There was never a dinner party or social gathering in general that he could not avoid. We could always find him in a corner, surrounded by men and women, listening to his adventures. For he was a captain of a small ship and would sail when the mood would strike him. His last voyage kept him away for close to two years, and while in the past his return would be met with an eagerness for him to tell, and for many to hear, of his exotic places he had traveled to, this last time his return was shrouded in secrecy. In fact, no one knew of his return for over a month, and we might never have known had not Mrs. Sullivan been noticed purchasing a crate of wine Mr. Peterson was known to like. His closer friends called upon him in an attempt to welcome their friend back to hear more tales of the sea. All of them were refused. Mr. Peterson is not expecting any visitors, Mrs. Sullivan told each of them before gently shutting the door. So it was rather surprising that a year later, invitations were sent out for a dinner party. Mr. Blythe, a mutual friend, would later fill me in on the details and of Mr. Peterson's odd behavior that night. Going to Mr. Blythe, Mr. Peterson did not emerge from his room for some time after his friends had gathered. Few of his friends speculated, quietly of course, that it was his housekeeper that had set up the whole thing in an attempt to coax Mr. Peterson out of hiding and back into the social world. When Mr. Peterson did finally emerge, he was timid and looked around very nervously, smiling here and there as his guests greeted him, a marked difference from his previous behavior at dinner parties. The guests obviously noticed, but due to politeness, let Mr. Peterson have his space with only a few attempting any sort of conversation. As was the custom at the time, shortly before dinner, a game was proposed. A few months prior, a medium of sorts had traveled through and entertained the curious. Though a few came in with absolute beliefs of her abilities, having spoken to, they believe, dead relatives or friends, and in one particular situation, a horse, the majority of these who witnessed the spectacle came away with believing that that's what it was, mere spectacle. However, upon her absence, a game began to make the round called spirits, in which two candles were placed on opposite ends of a table, one being lit while the other not. A glass cup is placed between the candles. The guests then take turns asking questions out loud, assigning each answers to candles. To be most effective, the game was played in complete darkness, save for the lit candle. This was the game that the guest agreed to play that night. Yet as the candles were being set up, Mr. Peterson, who must have left the room unnoticed, began to shriek, running back and forth, turning all the lights back on, and knocking the glass cup off the table, onto the floor. He was still breathing quite heavily as demanded that everybody leave, then left the room promptly. 
It would be the following day that Mr. Blythe would fill me on the details of the evening. It was rather odd, he said, the shriek and the look in his eyes. It was though he had suddenly become afraid of the dark. Over the next few days, rumors began to swirl concerning Mr. Peterson. Over the next few days, rumors began to swirl concerning Mr. Peterson. Some claimed he might have picked up some foreign disease that was bringing his brain to rot. Others believed that all the time he had spent on the sea, the salt had finally pushed him into insanity. Rumors, of course. No one could be sure either way what was wrong with Mr. Peterson. One thing we all did know was any time you walked by his house, whether it be day or night, didn't take anyone with even the slightest observational habits to notice that all the lights in his house were always on. A month later, we are told of his unexpected death. According to his personal physician, Mr. Peterson died of a combination of exhaustion and dehydration. Mrs. Sullivan let me into Mr. Peterson's study. For an adventurer, I was taken back how little was in the room. A small desk covered with papers and books, a rocking chair next to the fireplace, and two bookshelves of very large size filled to the top, with even more stacks of books sitting in front of them. And that was it. No trophies like you have seen in those who have gone on safari several times, or any exotic artifact that one tends to see in the university ethnographic department. I'll let you have your privacy to work, Mrs. Sullivan told me as she exited the room, laying a spare key to the house on the desk, should I need to go back and forth during my stay. I sat down in the rocking chair, feeling disappointed, and tallied up what would be my small commission from the job. The books might bring in a little bit, depending on their edition and subject matter, but that would be all. The desk would cost more to move it than what anyone would pay for it. Whatever lucrative payoff Miss Sullivan was hoping for was not going to materialize. I leaned back and threw a few sticks of wood onto the fireplace and lit it. I might as well be warm, I thought, if I'm going to see my financial benefit dwindle. I made my way over the desk and shoveled around some of the papers. Nothing too interesting. Some letters, the beginning of what looked like a manuscript, and a few drawings. Again, nothing of value. Pulling the drawers open and searching through them, I found much of the same. However, one of the drawers was locked. In a room full of valueless items, why would a drawer be locked, I thought. I remember the key Miss Sullivan had left behind, and I inserted it into the lock and turned it until it clicked open. I confess I grew a bit excited. Did this drawer hold the one valuable item that would make this entire endeavor worth it? Pulling the drawer open, all that was in there was an old leather-bound book with a latch, most likely a diary of some sort. Flipping through the first few pages confirmed this. Again, nothing of much interest. Mr. Peterson's thoughts on the stars, weather patterns he observed and recorded, and best places to find necessary resources. But then I flipped to the back and noticed the last entry was dated three days before he was found dead. I will quote it at length because it is quite curious and sheds light onto Mr. Peterson's secrecy and behavior at his final dinner party. April 23rd. I was stranded, as it were, finding myself adrift in the ocean. My ship had sunk, though by what cause I do not know. I seemed to be the only survivor or at least for my soul, I pray that I was, that in my haste, I hadn't left anyone behind. The night was clear with a light breeze, and in the distance I could see a blinking light. Too close and bright to be a star, or had to be a lighthouse. With no other options, I began to row towards the light. I had been rowing for about 20 minutes or so when I noticed a green light below the water about five meters away. It didn't sway with the water, rather seemed fixed upon its spot. It wasn't bright either, just a soft, glowing green light. 
It lingered for a few moments, then vanished. Initially, I didn't pay it much mind, as in this particular part of the ocean, creatures of all sizes produce all sorts of light during the night. I rode further on, getting more closer to lighthouse, to safety. Again, after a few more minutes, I noticed the green light, this time closer and brighter than before, and just like before, the light didn't move, it stayed stationary. I know of no sea creature that can stay as still as this light was. It began to grow faster, always keeping my eyes in the green light. Then it was gone. I stopped rowing and let the water settle a bit. Surely I was able to identify what fish might be emitting such a light if I stopped and watched. But as the water began to settle from my rowing, the light once again became visible and this time began to move towards my boat. I grabbed my oars and rowed as hard as I could, but the green light was soon upon me and vanished beneath the boat. I kept rowing, not wanting to stop, just wanting to get to the lighthouse. Each time I pushed the oars into the water, it seemed as though the goal was getting further and further away despite me heading towards it. I soon stopped to give my arms a rest and to catch my breath. I sat there, listening to the water, glancing around for the green light. I did not see it. However, I could hear scratching. Light at first but then louder until it was coming directly beneath where I sat. The noise continued for several minutes and I could hear it echoing throughout the boat. I covered my ears and shouted to make it stop, but it only grew more aggressive. I began to pray and pressed my hands harder against my ears and buried my face to my arms and prayed louder. When I finally uncovered my ears and lifted my face, I was met with silence. I grabbed the sides of the boat and breathed deeply. I didn't want to look or move around. The lighthouse was now closer than it was a few minutes ago, but still, I dared not move. I could feel something there, watching. As I reached slowly for my oar on my left-hand side, I turned my head. Wrapped around the edge of the boat were eight bony fingers, and just beneath the water, looking back, was a face with two yellow eyes above a lipless grin. Releasing his grip from the edge of the boat, the figure, still looking and smiling, sank back into the water, creating not a ripple. I couldn't tell you how fast I rode to the shore and hurried up to the lighthouse, for it felt like only minutes had passed. But every time I close my eyes, or the lights go out, I can see that face with that smile. When I do sleep, it comes to me in my dreams, and I can feel it crawling upon me. It is the light that keeps it at bay. It is the light I need to wrap myself in. Is the light I need to wrap myself in. And now, before we introduce our second story, let's take a quick break to breathe and to regain our senses. Welcome back. Hopefully our first tale didn't creep you out too much and you are willing to venture into our second. Our next dark story tells the story of a young child who on a visit to her grandmother's house discovers a mysterious spot in the woods that someone even more mysterious might live there. What price is a child willing to pay to know what secret lies in the woods? For our second story we present to you Where They Sleep. The furthest one can get away from the city before seeing civilization again is 45 minutes, where, after miles of dense forest, lies a little village. I've been there once, as a child, for the summer with my family. My grandmother lived in the village and had fallen ill the winter before. Initially, the local doctor suspected she might have caught a chill and prescribed a hearty fire and bed rest. 
When the cold persisted and was still present in the spring, the doctor sighed and delicately told my grandmother to begin thinking about her final arrangements. It wasn't until the end of term, as I skipped through the door with marvelous plans for all the adventures I would be afforded for the next few months, that my parents told me of my grandmother's condition and asked me to pack. We arrived at her house about noon the next day. My grandmother, hands folded in her apron, was standing still in the front door as we pulled in, a wide smile across her face. It was at my grandfather's funeral that I had last seen her. He was buried in the city cemetery. My grandmother, nervous about being alone for the first time in decades, stayed with my parents and I for a few days afterwards. Each night we would sit on the back porch and she would tell me stories. Some so funny I would beg her to stop, I was laughing so hard. When one of my parents would join us, they would always ask, what's so funny? But my grandmother would just look at me and place her finger across her lips, then turn to my mother and father and say, it's our little secret. We settled in at my grandmother's house quite quickly. My parents would take the pull-out couch in the living room, and I would sleep in the spare room on the second floor, just down the hall from my grandmother's room. Right away it was easy to tell my grandmother had lost a lot of her strength. She breathed heavily when she moved, and unless standing perfectly still, would rely on stable objects, if one of us were not close by, to help her navigate around the house. She would also retire to her bedroom really early. She would eat a small meal at 3 p.m., then my father would help her up the stairs to her room. And in the morning, as soon as the sun had risen, he would help her down the stairs. I could only assume that all her energy was spent climbing up and down those stairs each day before I'd visit when she was alone. My parents must have sensed my restlessness before I did, because three weeks after our arrival, I was told to go outside and find something to do. Exiting the front door, I grabbed the first stick of any length I could find and began swiping at the grass as I made my way around back towards the forest behind the house. It was only after I heard the creak that I realized I had been walking in silence. Odd, really, how silent the woods were. Not a bird or the winds running through the leaves were making any noise. All I could hear was the creak, and it was closer than I anticipated, though the running of the water sounded further off. I stopped at the edge of the creek and watched the water ripple and move around the rocks. The water was very clear, and I could see straight through to the bottom. It must have been curiosity that forced me to follow the current along the edge. Truth be told, I have never seen a creek before, or any body water outside a bathtub. I didn't want to hinder my experience with simply turning back towards the house. I walked along the edge for a bit, still whacking the grass with my stick, when I noticed up ahead a wooden bridge. The path that led in and out seemed to have vanished, but there, suspended above the creek, was a bridge. Stay away from there, a voice said. I spun around, startled. There, almost perched upon a large rock, was a little boy, probably around my age, maybe a tad younger. The bridge, he said. Stay away from there. I looked back at the bridge, then at the boy, and asked, Why? It seems sturdy. Is it dangerous to cross? No, the little boy answered. That's where they sleep. Who sleeps there? I responded back. The boy shrugged. Don't know. His head dropped down to his chest. That's just what I've been told. That's where they sleep. With that, he hopped off the rock and ran into the forest. I wasn't sure how to react. The bridge looked harmless, and other than the boy, I hadn't seen any animals around. However, it looked like it was beginning to get dark. So, with one last look at the bridge, I turned around and made my way back to the house. I spent most of the night tossing and turning, replaying the scene in my mind, and trying to figure out why I hadn't seen the boy before hearing him talk. 
Shortly after I had returned, I asked my parents how many other children in the village there might be. They were unsure, though there couldn't have been many. The village, once a lively place with many families, is now mainly populated by elderly individuals, much like my grandmother, who wants to enjoy their lives in peace. Why? Are you looking for a playmate? My mother asked. No, I said, just curious. Before finally falling asleep, I had concluded that the boy must also be visiting and was merely reciting something he had probably overheard, then became embarrassed and ran off. However, the bridge continued to linger in my thoughts through much the next day. The following afternoon, after my grandmother had finished her small afternoon meal, my father asked if I wouldn't mind helping her up the stairs for bed that evening. I was hesitant to agree at first. I had seen the struggle firsthand day after day of my father lifting her step by step to the second floor. In the end, I nodded yes and told my grandmother. In the end, I nodded yes and told my grandmother to let me know when she was ready. My grandmother seemed pleased with the idea and smiled at me. Either my grandmother was deliberately making it difficult on my father, or he had lost some of his strength because assisting her up the stairs was not as strenuous a task as I had thought it would be. In fact, every few steps she would turn to face me with a small grin, almost nodding in approval. In just a few minutes, we descended the stairs, and after letting her get some of her breath back, she took my arm as we made her way to the bedroom. Assuming that my duty had ended with her settled in bed, I had turned to leave when she grabbed my wrist. Not forcefully, mind you, but merely a gentle tug. What's bothering you, my child? She asked, looking up at me. Nothing, I said. It's just... Never mind. No, I can tell, she responded back. I'm not too old to sense something is wrong with my grandchild. Something is bothering you. Do you miss your friends? I wasn't sure what to say. I stood there a while, biting my lower lip and circulating my eyes around the room. It's just... I met this boy yesterday, I began. Oh? Yeah, and I'm not sure where he came from. Well, so many visitors come and go around here, she said. No, I replied. I was walking through the woods and he just came out of nowhere. Why were you in the woods? My grandmother asked. And what do you mean by he came out of nowhere? Her tone had suddenly become earnest and for a second a chill ran through my body. Had it wander onto a piece of land I wasn't supposed to? However, before I could muster a response, her face softened and she said, Oh, it's okay, my dear. I don't mind you playing back there. She shifted a little bit on the bed. Why don't you come sit next to me and tell me about your new friend? It has been a long time since we had our little private talks. I sat down next to her, lightly, fearing that too much pressure would hurt her fail frame. Well, I began, he was just a boy, I guess, sitting on a rock. Boys sitting on rocks can be dangerous, she teased. I smiled a bit. Anything else? she asked. There was this bridge, and he told me to stay away from it. He said that that's where they sleep. I said, looking at her, what do you mean? Who sleeps there? Oh, just some old folk tale, she said. I know living in the city, you don't hear much of it anymore, but some of us rural folks still tell the same stories their ancestors did. I wouldn't pay it much mind. I thought for a second. That still didn't answer my question. But what did he mean? That's where they sleep, I pressed. There is an old story, my grandmother said, of a family that used to live here in the village many years ago, even before I was born, if you could believe that. My grandmother chuckled a little bit at her joke and continued. This family, they were not well off. There was a husband and a wife, and they had three children. No one knew where they came from. They just showed up in the village one day, offering to do small jobs that would come up. Cutting firewood, tending a garden, maybe watching the children. 
that sort of thing. But one day, one of the family members was accused of stealing some silverware from one of the houses they were working at. Which one of the family members, I asked, you know, who stole the silverware? Oh, not sure really, she replied. It was just one of them. Anyway, the family of course denied the charges, but it made no difference. The Civil War was missing, and they were outsiders. Nonetheless, they were asked to leave. Apparently, they didn't go far, and were seen living below the bridge. The bridge that you saw a few weeks later. My grandmother closed her eyes and took a deep breath. For close to a minute, there was silence, and I wasn't sure if she had fallen asleep. Storytelling was now something else that took a lot of energy out of her, but I had to hear more, so I nudged her just a bit. Grandmother, I said. I'm still here, dear, she responded, opening her eyes. The family, I began. What happened to them? Surely they don't still live below the bridge. I mean, you said it happened years ago. Oh, no, 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 she said. They are long gone. Like I said, it is mostly folklore. But why would people still fear a family that no longer lives there? Some say, she said, that they never really left. Some say that if anyone from the village comes across the bridge and catches a glimpse of them, during the night they will sneak in and take something of value from you probably out of revenge for being accused of theft, then thrown out. Have you ever been down to the bridge, I asked? What kind of stuff do they take? Yes, I have, many times. Never saw anything though, she said. Maybe an animal or two creeping amongst the brushes. She was quiet for a bit. You know, I'm not sure what they take. No one ever says. They just say they will take something of value. The bridge is old, so maybe you shouldn't play around it, she finished, closing her eyes once more. This time her voice sounded hollower and distant, and I wasn't sure if it was from fatigue or something else. Had she seen something? I sat there for a few more minutes looking around the bedroom before she opened her eyes again. You still here? She asked gently. Such a sweet child. With that, she fell asleep. Instead of going back downstairs, I went straight to my room after I left my grandmother. Was the boy I saw a member of the family? If so, what would they take? I rummaged through my stuff to see if anything was missing. The only thing I considered valuable was a compass that was given to me last year for my birthday. But that was in my room back in the city. Would they trek back and take that? How would they know where I lived? After searching through my suitcase and drawers, I concluded that not only was nothing missing, but that I also didn't have anything of value on me. I laid down the bed rethinking the story my grandmother had told me. What an awful thing to do to a family just trying to get by. Or maybe, as my grandmother said, it was just a story that people tell each other or to children to keep them out of the woods and to close to home. Convincing myself it was all nonsense, I decided to go back down to the bridge the next day and see for myself if the story had any truth in it. If my parents noticed how quickly I ate breakfast, they didn't say anything. But before anyone had finished their coffee, I was out the door, making my way down to the creek, then to the bridge. It didn't take me long to find the spot I had been a few days before, nor was the boy sitting on the rock. I waited around for a few minutes to see if he would return, but I was growing anxious and wanted to get closer to the bridge. I found a nice spot about 50 yards away and sat down, playing with the grass and leaves below me, and waited. I wasn't sure what I would see, if anything at all. The forest wasn't as silent as before, and I listened to the wind rustle through the trees and watched the leaves scatter here and there listlessly. And I listened to the creek as the water trickled against the rocks and the edge. A few hours later, disappointment set in. I hadn't seen anything, nothing at all. Maybe it was all just folklore. I felt foolish. As I stood up to leave, however, I noticed a small bush across the creek move. 
It was only for an instance, and could have easily been attributed to the wind. Either way, I stood there frozen, focused on the bush. Again it moved, but with more force this time, as though someone was trying to crawl through it. And out of the corner of my eye, something rushed up a tree. I took a step back, and slowly looked up at the leaves, but nothing was there. I quickly looked back and forth between the bush and the tree, but neither moved. Then the water splashed as though someone had run across it. I could feel my heart racing through my chest. I wanted so badly to move, to run away, but I couldn't. A twig broke behind me. I spun around, eyes half closed and telling myself not to. But there was nothing. Nothing was there. I turned around again to look at the trees and the bush. I felt calm all of a sudden, and I could move. I took several steps backwards away from the creek and looked around. I had fooled myself, I thought. I so desperately wanted to see something that I forced myself to see something. I took a few deep breaths and started back to the house. It was quiet when I returned. My father told me that my grandmother was already in her room for the night. For the rest of the day, I sat in the living room and watched television with my parents until I went to bed. I awoke in the darkness. I could feel I was in a bed. I tried to cry out, but I could only make a hissing sound. I reached out to touch something, anything. I yelled louder, but again, only a hissing sound came from my mouth. Why couldn't I see? In my confusion, I fell out of bed, hitting my head on the ground. I could hear footsteps running, running up the stairs. I felt from my face and was horrified. I could hear the door being flung open, and I reached for whoever might be there to help me. All I saw back was me curled on the floor, arms outstretched, with a face that had no eyes and no tongue. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. We'll be releasing new dark stories every Monday, and we are sure you wouldn't want to miss out. If you like the stories and what we are doing here, please consider supporting the show with the links provided, or leave a tip if you like a particular episode. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Dark Stories from the Campfire.